This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. Do we do radio? Yes, we do. Do we talk politics? Yes, we do. Do we look good? Yes, I do. I can't speak for the rest of the crew. And if you just tuned in, this is Stanley Fritz with Selena Hill and my boy Chad from The Good, The Chad, and The Ugly. And today we have an action-packed show that's going to start off with a conversation we haven't had in a while. A conversation about the Middle East. Yes, we are talking about Mosul, which is a town in Iraq, which is currently a quote-unquote ISIS stronghold. And I say quote-unquote because apparently ISIS is catching a heavy fade as we speak from the Iraqi soldiers and from U.S. soldiers. And Selena, who knows how to read and also has done research, is going to help us understand that topic. Get him, Hill. Oh, no, that's what the expert is for. Easy. (laughs) FYI on that, guys. So, yes, as you guys may recall, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump spent a good amount of time during the third debate talking about Mosul and ISIS. Why? Well, because the battle for Mosul is, again, a really big deal. So, Mosul is the second largest city in Iraq, and it's the last remaining ISIS stronghold in that country. That's why the operation to free Mosul from ISIS has been dominating news headlines, and that's why uh, Donald Trump did a very horrible job in trying to explain what's going on there. Um, So ISIS has actually been occupying the country since June 2014, after the Iraqi army surrendered control to ISIS, um, and basically they just used armed militants to violently seize uh, Mosul, which is very big in oil. Didn't this happen last year when the Iraqi soldiers literally was like, no, we don't want to fight and handed the ISIS soldiers their guns? <laughs> yeah. we, we did a segment about this a couple, a couple of months ago. I remember that. Mm-hmm. They handed them the guns? No, they actually did. They actually handed ISIS. Like, yeah. want no part of this, take this and left. And You can't come back to the block after that. Uh, no. I'm going to get these jokes off on Mohammed. You can't, you can't pull that. Go ahead, Selena. Right, no. So following the takeover, ISIS leader Abar, um, Abu... Bar al-Baghdadi declared that he had established an Islamic State or caliphate. So last week, um, Iraqi forces, which are being supported by the U.S., they launched a major offense to reclaim the city and take back Mosul. Now, although uh, ISIS is, you know, significantly smaller in size, there are some experts that are, that are saying um, they'll probably put up a fight for a few months up to about three, but most experts are saying we're definitely going to be able to take back Mosul. But, you know, it's not going to be that easy. Now, what ISIS has done, they've actually laced the city with, like, suicide bombs, IED, booby traps, car bombs. Snipers. Right. They have this city on lockdown because they've been there for over two years, and and they're very familiar with the land. So, you know, there's definitely going to be some casualties. Um... FYI, but you know, um, sorry about that. So, in uh, in addition to taking back the the city, uh, taking back Mosul from ISIS, um, the U.S. is saying that this could be the final straw to pretty much take out the Islamic terrorist group in whole. So that is why, again, this is a very big deal. It's been a long time coming, um, but it kind of feels like it's a little shorter than I necessarily thought. But I mean. 
there's been a lot going on since 2003, since we first invaded Iraq. So if you think about it from that spectrum, it's about time. So we have a very special guest on the line who's going to help us go inside the battle for Mosul and explain why it matters. We have on the line with us Stephen Pamp Irilla, who is an assistant professor of political science and international relations at SUNY New Paltz. He is also he also studies American foreign policy, state building and counterinsurgency, and he has worked for Citizen Action of New York, where Stanley actually works now, right? What a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, you know? Professor. Hi, Selena. How are you? Hey, Stanley and Chad. Hi. Hey, so hey, so we're very happy to have you. So, you know, do you and Stanley know each other or is it a big coincidence here? So we met each other actually once at, uh, at Justice Works, which is a citizen action conference, and we were supposed to get a drink, but I, in my uh, silliness, I... Stanley texted me his number in, like, an Instagram direct message, and I missed it, so I owe Stanley a drink, actually, the next time I see him. He stood me up, but it's okay. I forgive him. <laughs> it's, you're not the first, Professor. Uh, Stanley probably gets stood up all the time, or maybe not. All right, so um, <laughs> um, back, to, back to the topic at hand. So can you sort of give us the latest update on what's going on in Mosul? Sure. So, um, so about six days ago, the Prime Minister Rock Haider Al Abadi announces um, that uh, that a battle will begin effectively, um, whereby Iraqi security forces, combined with other forces, uh, will attempt to take back uh, the city of Mosul. Um, right now, uh, uh, these forces, and we should be clear about what they are: Iraqi security forces include the Iraqi military. Uh, they also include uh, other military forces from other groups in the region, uh, the Kurdish Peshmerga, who represent uh, the Kurdistan regional government, uh, Shia militias as well, some of whom are uh, funded by Iran. They're converging on Mosul now from the north and the east, um, and they look to hopefully take the city um, in the next two to three months, as you mentioned before. Um, There is expected to be somewhere between 4,000 to 6,000 ISIS fighters uh, who are trying to uh, protect the city and effectively stop it from being taken over, but um, it's generally uh, viewed that they will be unsuccessful and that the Iraqi military um, should take back the city. Um, But it's expected to be a a very bloody uh, and long fight. Uh, Oh, um, so the question that I I wanted to sort of insert or jump in there was, how and why can we be so confident that we're going to take back this city? So, uh, given the the number of ISIS fighters, again about between four and six thousand, uh, and the many thousands of Iraqi military forces, um, Kurdish Peshmerga, uh, and other uh, military forces surrounding them, uh, surrounding the city, um, eventually uh, they're going to be able to take the city and drive out those ISIS fighters. In addition to those uh, military forces, uh, the U.S. military is leading a global coalition against ISIS that's going to support. Uh, those local military forces um, in taking the city. And so there's going to be a series of airstrikes, many of which have already been conducted, um, but will likely continue um, to aid uh, forces on the ground um, to take back different neighborhoods, the different parts of the city, uh, bombing potential strong points held by ISIS and allowing local military forces to move through and capture the city. Chad, did you want to jump in there? Yeah, didn't I? Uh, I was I was going over the news this morning, and I saw that Kurdish Peshmerga, uh, Peshmerga forces actually took a town just outside Mosul this, uh, just this morning. Did they not? 
right. So they're they're moving on uh, on some towns uh, in the north and the east of Mosul. And again, just for kind of geographic reference, Mosul is in uh, northern Iraq, the second largest city. Um, but this is somewhat contentious uh, because there is a concern on the part of the Iraqi government um, that if the Kurdish Peshmerga take are too um, active in this offensive, that they could potentially control uh, the city after uh, ISIS is driven out. Um, and for the Iraqi government in Baghdad, led by Prime Minister Abadi, um, that would be a bad outcome for them. They want to retain control of the city. They don't want the Kurds to effectively expand their control over Iraq outside of the regions that they currently control under the Kurdistan regional government. So the Kurds are advancing, uh, but the Iraqi military would like them not to take uh, the city itself, uh, but rather have them support the operation, um, because that, would, again, would allow the Kurds to exert more political influence over uh, a major city that the Iraqi government would like to exert control over instead. So, Stephen, so if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is that we have a chance to not only knock ISIS out of Mosul, but this could actually be the, the death blow to this uh, terrorist organization. And if we take this over, ISIS is done for completely? So I, I wouldn't say that. So uh, certainly uh, Mosul is the last major city um, that ISIS controls in Iraq. Um, they previously lost territory um, in western Iraq, uh, particularly the cities of Ramadi and Fallujah. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, ISIS would be done for completely. In Iraq, again, they're going to be more or less pushed out of major cities, but they're still going to have some influence in smaller towns, um, smaller population centers. Those haven't been completely cleared of ISIS. There are currently um, battles ongoing in other parts of Iraq involving ISIS, the city of Rokuk and the city of Rifa, um, and ISIS is still engaging in different kinds of military or terrorist operations in those cities as well. So it would definitely be a major blow to ISIS, as I think Selena mentioned in her intro. This is where um, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi declared a caliphate. Um, Mosul is where he declared the caliphate in 2014, so it's a major blow, but ISIS wouldn't be completely defeated. They still have a presence also in Syria, uh, the country just to the west of Iraq, um, and that's still somewhat robust, although their territory there is shrinking too. So it's a major blow, but they won't be completely defeated uh, just yet. Stephen, thank you so much for pretty much clarifying that, because from my understanding, you know, ISIS as an organization, um, they there's like a, a different tiers to why they have been successful in taking over different lands and recruiting people. Like one thing they do is really well is like online recruitment, um, where you have a lot of people who have been actively engaging via social media, YouTube and Twitter. And, you know, they may engage like that and even become like a lone wolf. We've seen a lot of, a lot of we've seen that happen a few times here in the U S and in France, obviously. So, you know, the question is, how do you really, Really defeat a terrorist organization who is using and employing um, that tactic um, in, in addition to, you know, being armed and using violence to kill people, to terrorize people and to um, create a lot of fear mongering. Then they also, you know, they have the online aspect. There's almost two kinds of um, two kinds of ways that ISIS is trying to mobilize followers. Um, so obviously there's kind of a territorial um, kind of objective, right? They've always wanted to seize and expand their control of territory, but they also want to inspire other individuals who may be dissatisfied with the society that they may live in anywhere around the world uh, to take up arms and engage in some kind of violent extremist terrorist activity there. Um, certainly 
the appeal of ISIS um, is declining um, compared to two years ago, roughly, when they kind of exploded on the scene from Syria and moved into western Iraq and took over all these cities. Um, you know, that was when ISIS kind of grew so much in its stature and its reputation and was seen as somewhat unstoppable. Nowadays, though, ISIS, of course, is, is becoming much more weaker. Um, and so that, that reduces the ability, it, its ability to kind of appeal um, to dissatisfied people around the world. But then there's, of course, this other issue. So how are you going to deal with those kinds of propaganda spread through things like Twitter and social media? Uh, the Obama administration has worked with other countries. Um, to promote something known as Combating Violent Extremism, uh, a program also known as CVE, the acronym for that. Um, and it seeks to propagate narratives in the media suggesting why uh, ISIS is wrong, why they will be defeated, why they don't necessarily represent uh, Islam, and why uh, ordinary people, in fact, should resist ISIS. So there's a broader kind of um, ideological uh, uh, program here that the U.S. government, along with allies, is trying to develop to kind of push back on that messaging developed by ISIS and spread out through social media. Hi, Stephen. It's Chad again. Um, so another thing that I was uh, wondering about with the uh, entire offensive around Mosul is uh, what is Turkey's interest in this? Uh, the the Turkish government, of course, um, uh, they have strong interest and ties to the city of Mosul. It used to be part of that country uh, somewhere around 100 years ago, I believe. And uh, there's uh, some, spe- and I mean, they're they're actually firing upon uh, Kurdish Peshmerga, and uh, I think the Shia militias as well. So, I mean, what sort of element do they add? To, to Tur- does uh, does Turkish uh, forces and interests add to this whole quagmire? Turkey, you know, it, it, it's fascinating because uh, Iraq has, since the 2003 invasion uh, by the United States, has kind of become a site of regional. Um, you know, kind of competition among other regional powers in the Middle East to exercise influence. And so for Turkey, um, you know, they, as you mentioned, right, uh, Mosul used to be part of uh, the Ottoman Empire, the the kind of old-fashioned empire that preceded the modern uh, nation-state of Turkey. Um, And so Turkey does have some kind of historical claim uh, to this territory. Prime Minister Erdogan, I'm sorry, President Erdogan, he previously was Prime Minister, he kind of fashions himself as kind of this neo-Ottoman uh, kind of ruler. And so the idea of spreading Turkish influence throughout the Middle East has always been a priority for him. Hence, he wants to uh, ensure that Turkey has a say over how governmental authority is reasserted in Mosul uh, after ISIS is displaced. So uh, the Turks are supporting some local Sunni leaders uh, who hope to, who have raised some militias um, that are participating in this battle as well. But again, for the Iraqi government, the question is, um, do they want effectively these local proxies of Turkey to take over the city of Mosul to control different neighborhoods? That would be bad for Baghdad, uh, because, of course, they want to exert complete control over the city. Um, so the Battle of Mosul, as it's kind of um, consisting of this coalition of many different actors, some of whom sponsored by foreign powers, not just Turkey, but some of the Shia militias sponsored by Iran, um, all of these actors, they have this common interest in the short term in defeating ISIS, but over the long term, they have competing interests over trying to control the city and effectively fill the power vacuum, claim the kind of spoils of victory. Guys, if you're just tuning in, we are talking about the battle over Mosul um, with our very special foreign policy expert on the line. Uh, and later on in the show, we're going to be recapping the third debate. And then Stanley's going to go off about that latest NYPD shooting of a 
of a black woman. That'd so yes, yeah, so keep tuning in, guys. We're gonna go on a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Let Your Voice Be Heard. So we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz, Chad McDaddy Zaddy, the good, the Chad <laughs> and the ugly, and Selena Hill. Of course, we got Ashton on the internet with her Galaxy phone that might explode at any minute because galaxies are not that popping. She has an iPhone, sorry. <laughs> Don't, you, don't be talking back to me, that okay? I am a fearless leader. But guys, if you are just tuning in, we were talking about Mosul and the conflict going on over there. And one of the people listening on Facebook Live, once again, thank you for listening on Facebook Live, has a question. And Vern Ice says, how can we successfully defeat ISIS when we were not able to defeat the terrorism in our own backyard like the KKK? Oh. And if you guys have questions mm. on Facebook Live, please com- please leave a comment and we'll get to them if we can. Or if you want to call in and be heard, the number is 212-650-6903. Or you can call Selena at 347. Just Psych. kidding. Uh-huh. Well, you know, that's, that's a really good question. And I want to throw that to our special guest. We have on the line with us, Stephen Pampanella who is the assistant professor at SUNY uh, New Paltz. Um, he teaches political science and international relations. And, Stephen, if I'm mispronouncing your last name, you, feel free to correct me now. He hung up because you got it wrong. Did you? Pampanella, but I, it's okay. That's, that's okay. Okay. Uh, Pampanella. Okay, got it. Pampanella. So uh, can you uh, sort of address that, that question um, that was just asked by one of our listeners? Yeah, so I think that's, that's an interesting question. I like that question uh, because it gets to... Um, you know, something we should recognize, the United States, um, although uh, in American foreign policy likes to present itself as some kind of uh, beacon of liberal progress, that we're going to spread liberal democracy and freedom around the world, um, uh, our history is replete with um, moments, I shouldn't say moments, in fact, a long history of racism uh, and oppression of people of color, um, and that has include uh, acts of terrorism by groups such as the KKK, who, of course, emerged. Um, after the South defeat in the did we lose Steven? Um, I'll work on it right now. Oh, oh yes, yes. We did. you see, this is what happened when you have Sprint. <laughs> um, okay. So while we work on getting Steven back on the line, um, you know, I, I did kind of want to, you know, switch gears a little bit because we kind of just brought up racism and the KKK, right? And yeah. that le- led me to my next question about Donald Trump. Um, so, you know, something I want to talk about is what he said during the third presidential debate when he criticized the Obama administration for, you know, for pretty much broadcasting our plan to take over Mosul. Um, and like, you know, and talking about it in the newspapers and in the press. And he said that's a bad thing. Well, he said that? that's a bad thing. But anyone with even a cursory knowledge of military strategy and history knows that he clearly does not know what he is talking about. He's talking about why didn't we just sneak in and surprise them? We're talking about somewhere around 100,000 troops. We're talking about, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, like the Battle of Helm's Deep, which is the massive armies coming over a hill, there is no... He's talking about strategic surprise, surprise attack. And with a battle this large, I mean, to to put it into context, we're talking D-Day. 
You can't just surprise attack with D-Day. The Germans knew the Allied forces were going to hit. They just didn't know where they were going to hit and what time they were going to hit. There's a huge difference between strategic surprise, which is what Donald Trump is talking about, why don't we all just sneak in, and then there's tactical surprise, which is when you hit them and when you, where and when you hit them. And there's a big difference between strategic and tactical. Donald Trump clearly does not know what he's talking about. And if there are actually 200 generals that are endorsing him, they've all pulled out just with that one thing. I mean, because you cannot, you cannot. I mean, this is this is a huge city, Mosul. And as Stephen had said, there are, you know, there are thousands of ISIS fighters in there and they're executing civilians. You can't, you know, you, you can't just show up one day. And, and start fighting them. And it's not going to be uh, a simple fight. It's going to be a long, protracted battle that's probably going to take months. There is no such thing as strategic surprise in that. Right. And the other thing he said, which which demonstrated immense ignorance on Donald Trump's part, was how, well, now they know we're coming and these guys are going to run. Of course those guys aren't going to be there. Yeah, they are. What are they going to do? They're going to take off across the desert where they're an open target for allied forces who are constantly, you know, canvassing the area with their with their planes and helicopters and yep. everything else. That would be wonderful if they ran instead of staying hidden in a city surrounded by, you know, troops willing to die for them and booby traps everywhere. And I mean, bystanders. Yeah. I mean, this is this. It's, it's a complete failure on Donald Trump's part right. of understanding tactics and uh, even a cursory knowledge of, of no, military tactics and warfare would, would show that he's completely out of his mind. I, 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 don't, I think it's it's well documented that Donald Trump doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. The question I have for for Stephen, you know, besides why does Donald Trump sniff glue before he comes to the debates, is in relation to this battle in Mosul, why should we care about this in the U.S.? Sure. So, um, so I, yeah, I, I think it's exactly right to criticize Trump. He has no understanding of military strategy or tactics. Another reason to kind of um, advertise that the um, that some kind of assault might be coming on Mosul is to encourage um, uh, to encourage civilians also to leave the city um, and not be kind of caught as collateral damage as uh, military forces move in. Um, but why why should we care? So um, we should care about Iraq fundamentally uh, because we should remember that Iraq has been uh, a major uh, object of concern for American foreign policy since uh, since the 1990s, of course, with the first Gulf War, even going back beyond that, um, when Iraq under Saddam Hussein was somewhat of um, received much support uh, from the United States uh, in the Iran-Iraq War uh, of the 1980s as well. Um, so uh, Iraq, for about you know eight years, um, was occupied by the United States. Uh, it's its government, in many ways, was formed uh, by the United States by cajoling and pressure by the United States to pressure a lot Iraqi politicians to do many things. Um, many uh, U.S. military um, personnel uh, have fought in Iraq uh, and have died in Iraq, have been wounded in Iraq. Um, many of them were dismayed when uh, ISIS swept back into western and northern Iraq and took over cities like uh, Mosul, uh, Ramadi, and Fallujah in 2014. Um, and if Iraq as a country is to survive and effectively be a stable um, state at some point in the future, um, Mosul has to be retaken. Um, uh, and so so for all those reasons, uh, Iraq is very important. It also is important to the Middle East more broadly. Again, as I mentioned before, there's this kind of broad struggle of pa- for power amongst different, um, different regional powers, Iran, Turkey, even Saudi Arabia. Um, and whoever effectively is going to be in charge in the Middle East 
um, uh, that's going to be determined by who um, has influence as Iraq is slowly put back together after ISIS is, is pushed out. Stephen, I want us to jump in there because I want to know if the outcome of the U.S. election will have any type of influence on what's going on in Iraq and Syria and the war against ISIS and terrorism. Sure. So let's um, let's assume for the moment that Hillary Clinton will win the election. And if you follow uh, websites like 538.com, which aggregates polling, it looks like she's going to win. She's up to about like an 86 percent chance of winning in terms of probability. Um, so in Iraq, there's probably not much more that's going to be done in terms of the United States. Right now, we've got about 6,000 U.S. military personnel. They're engaged in uh, advising, assisting, and training the Iraqi military forces, providing intelligence, providing um, military training, operational support. Um, some Marines, in fact, are even firing artillery um, on ISIS positions. Um, that won't stop. In fact, that, that train and assist mission is probably going to go on and continue so that Iraq's military institutions and military forces um, can improve over time. Um, in Syria, it's a little more um, it's a little more dicey. Um, Hillary Clinton has said in the debates that uh, what she wants to do is impose a no-fly zone over northern Syria, and the purpose of that really is to ensure that the Syrian military forces uh, and the Russian air force as well can't uh, use air power and bomb uh, Syrian rebel positions, especially in the city of Aleppo, which is currently under siege. Um, that presents the possibility of uh, some kind of potential uh, air-to-air uh, combat situation between the United States, Syrian, and Russian Air Force um, uh, air force platforms, um, which would be uh, an, an especially large escalation um, of conflict. Uh, we had an air-to-air engagement with the Russians, except for some, I believe, some very secret ones during the Korean War in the 1950s. Uh, you know, the Cold War, for the most part, was peaceful between the Soviet Union and the United States. We never actually exchanged um, uh, fire against each other. Um, so that would be a, a pretty profound escalation. So assuming Hillary wins, uh, we can assume that there's probably going to be some more um, U.S. involvement in Syria. Um, but how that plays out and whether or not that's going to lead to a happy outcome uh, in terms of U.S. interests um, isn't very clear. I'm personally very skeptical about that. Stephen, a lot of burning of busters and um, glass-eating Trump supporters have said that if Hillary becomes president, that we are going to go to war with Syria and possibly Russia as a result, because Russia is clearly in Assad's back pocket, or maybe Assad's in their back pocket, who knows. So do you think that if Hillary becomes president, we really do have a chance of actually putting boots on the ground in Syria and engaging in another high-level war like what we have with Iraq um, the, for pretty much the entire Bush administration and most of Obama's administration? Right. So, so Hillary hasn't um, hasn't expressed any desire to put troops on the ground um, in Syria. Um, we should mention, though, uh, there are U.S. special forces in Syria, in northern Syria, right now. Um, they're supporting um, the Kurdish units in northern Syria, and they're trying to take uh, territory from ISIS. Um, but then, generally, when we think about um, you know the phrase "boots on the ground," we don't think of special forces. That's really where we reserve that more for conventional military forces like U.S. Army soldiers or U.S. Marines. Um, but probably not. That, that probably won't happen. Um, the, generally, um, the defense establishment, the U.S. military and foreign policy thinkers have generally turned away from the idea of deploying U.S. ground forces um, engaged in some kind of a land war in Asia. In Asia. Uh, former Defense Secretary Robert Gates says, said uh, before he retired, 
that if, you know, if anyone is thinking uh, in the defense community about deploying ground forces to a land war in Asia, they should have their head examined. Um, so there's certainly been a pushback against those kinds of more intensive forms of intervention. Um, but again, the prospect of some kind of no-fly zone um, in northern Syria, Hillary Clinton has certainly floated that. Um, and so that's, that's, a, that's a definite possibility. Hi, it's Chad, uh, Stephen. Uh, I just want to circle back to Turkey again, because Turkey is once again involved. Uh, they've, uh, uh, they also have, not only do they have designs on Mosul, but they also have designs on Aleppo in Syria. And so you have the, uh, the Shia militants from Iran. You have the, uh, the Kurdish Peshmerga. Uh, Turkey is opposing both of those, and not only in Iraq and in Syria. I mean, it just, you know, every time you look at this situation, it just circles back round and, and everything is interconnected and, and Saudi Arabia is in there somehow. I mean, like, how do we get any of this sorted out? Like, everything is, is just interconnected and circling back on each other. And we're, we're allied with the Kurdish one day and maybe Turkey another. And, like, what a mess. So, I mean, like... Exactly how do we sort out what's going on with Turkey and all of this as well? Right. So, right. Uh, you're exactly right. It's an incredibly complex little situation with multiple states, um, multiple regional powers who have developed proxies, local allies in each of these countries, both Iraq and Syria, and they're each pursuing their own agenda. Um, they may have short-term, uh, a short-term convergence of interests in one moment, say, defeating ISIS, but over the long term, they may have different objectives. So Turkey's always had this objective of trying to um, depose uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria after he uh, engaged in a violent and brutal counterinsurgency campaign against um, uh, protesters who were part of the Arab Spring after 2001. For the United States, you know, we said that we wanted Assad to go um, in about 2002, uh, I'm sorry, 2012, and that seems to align with Turkey's interests, yet our predominant interest, our real primary interest, is defeating ISIS. And so that's led us in Turkey to kind of pursue somewhat different objectives. Combined with that, um, you have this issue of expanding Tur uh, Kurdish gains in northern Syria. We've worked with the Kurds, some of whom are, uh, many of whom, in fact, are uh, closely aligned with the PKK. The PKK is a Turkish, I'm sorry, a Kurdish insurgent group. Uh, which is fighting against Turkey right now. Um, and so we've aligned with them to fight against ISIS. But as they take over more territory in northern, in northern Syria, that scares Turkey because they see an enemy of Turkey, again, those same Kurdish groups, um, as taking over territory. So now they're sponsoring their own, um, their own Sunni rebels against Assad to also, though, fight ISIS and prevent the Kurds from taking over more territory. So... What you have here are two states, ostensible allies, Turkey and the United States, um, who are effectively pursuing different objectives and developing different local proxies, local armed uh, groups in Syria. Um, and it's not out of the realm of possibility that, uh, you know, they might engage in some kind of combat themselves um, over time. So it's, it's an incredibly complex situation, and it's not clear that it can be sorted out simply because these different regional powers, including the United States, they all have different interests. Um, in terms of how these civil wars resolve themselves. Right. Um, Stephen, unfortunately, we do have to bring this conversation to a close. But before we do, um, would you be able to just briefly summarize what comes next after the fall of Mosul? 
Sure. So the Iraqi government is going to uh, have to reassert governmental control. They're going to have to reassert public authority and engage in a long rebuilding effort in trying to rebuild basic, basic infrastructure, provide social services to the people of Mosul, um, ensure that refugees have access to uh, the bare necessities of life, food, shelter, water. Um, and politically, there's a bigger problem here, which is how does uh, the government of Iraq, which is riven by sectarian divisions between Sunnis and Shias, amongst the Shia community as well, um, some of whom are aligned with Iran, how do they reassert, reassert a government authority? How does the government of Iraq um, try to win back the loyalty of Sunnis in Iraq after they have previously been alienated and marginalized uh, by the Shia government in Iraq. And again, a lot of this has to do with Iran, too. They've been pushing for a more Shia-dominant Iraq that would repress the Sunnis. And the current prime minister, uh, Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi, has tried to form uh, a more conciliatory position with the Sunnis. Um, but that's difficult, again, given the influence of Iran. Stephen, how can listeners get in touch with you? Sure. So uh, they can uh, shoot me an email. Uh, my email address is P-I-M-P-I-N-E-S at newpulse.edu. You can also follow me on Twitter at Steve Pampanella, S-T-E-V-E, Pampanella, P-A-M-P-I-N-E-L-L-A. Thank you again for joining us this morning. Um, I just wanted to end by, you know, saying something we didn't get a chance to discuss, and that's the one million civilians who currently live in yeah. Mosul who have been victims and will continue to be victims um, over this battle. And I, I think that it's important to recognize that because as we gear up for the election and we understand the two candidates and who they are, and obviously it's clear that Hillary Clinton is the better choice, but, you know, we also can't forget that she voted for this, that she voted for us to invade Iraq back in 2003. Now, though she does take responsibility, we don't want another, we don't want a war hawk in our office who is going to continue to, you know, fight these wars and fight these battles without using or uh, without really trying a diplomatic approach because it does end in death and it does end in casualty, particularly for black and brown people and brown people of Islamic faith. So, you know, just to put a humanitarian spin on this, people are dying. And I think that we'll continue to, you know, focus on what's happening in Mosul, in the Middle East and with ISIS. With that said, we do have to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We're going to continue right here and let your voice be heard. WHCR.